You're listening to Real Investor Radio with Craig Fuhr and Jack Bevere, where we cover advanced real estate investing topics to help you stay ahead of the curve in your real estate investing business. Hey, welcome to Real Investor Radio for episode eight. Thanks for joining us, Jack. It's good to see you. Absolutely. Jack Bevere at my side here. I'm Craig Fuhr. Man, I went out uh, prior to the episode today and took a whole uh, look, look at a whole bunch of uh, news from around the industry. I want to start. I got about five topics to jump into today. Get your comments on. I'm sure you'll have many. Man, uh, we are seeing a bit of a shakeup in the mortgage industry right now. U.S. Bank has the fourth largest lender, mortgage lender in the country, has just announced uh, some pretty significant layoffs. They're having a very tough quarter right now. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, just give you a quick here. It says, uh, at U.S. Bank, we make decisions that position us well today for today's market and in the future. That was a spokesman, obviously. But um, they are off 41% year over year in lending. <laughs> the mortgage uh, space has been you know, suffering a lot from uh, originations volume, obviously. No one's selling houses as much. Real estate agents are feeling the same kind of pressure. And um, I was looking at some data. You know, mortgage originations from the peak are down something like 75%, which yes. is, but mortgage employment is not. Empl- mortgage employment is down maybe like 20%. Yeah, there's still quite a few people. I've got some, uh, let me give you some quick facts here. So in uh, March of 21, the mortgage industry was running, running at about $4.4 trillion annualized. That's down 75% at an annual pace of now 1.2 to maybe 1.4 trillion in 2023. That is significant. Yeah. And and how do you survive? Yeah, exactly. And the 2021 was certainly like very high watermark. So everyone was doing really, really well. Um, thinking the, thinking the gravy train would never end. Yeah, exactly. Right. But you know, with, with all the refinance business that was happening at that time and with volumes down 75%, but only employment in the mortgage sector down 20%, there seems like there's a, you know, one mortgage companies are are kind of overweighted in staff right now. So yeah. people are just doing fewer deals per capita. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's also had a negative effect on mortgage company uh, profitability leading to situations like what you described. Yeah. A couple more crazy facts here. So like you were saying, there's about 345,000 loan officers in the country, which remains really elevated for the originations that are being produced. And to speaking about realtors, there are about 1.5 million realtors in the country right now competing for just about 4 million homes. Right. And the, yeah, when you, when you extrapolate that data and say like, all right, so what's how, you know, the money that's being made, right? Like your average loan officer, what, how much are they making right now? The average uh, real estate agent, how much are they making right now? It's, it's down, you know, you know, obviously very significantly, but that's also not down. That doesn't drop down on a linear basis, right? Like the, this is the times where the best in those industries are able to continue to feed Absolutely. themselves and do well. And then there's like a whole swath of have nots that are just the walking dead who haven't you know hung it up yet. But, um, but, it, but at 75% off, even those who are the high flyer, look, there's always in that industry, there's always in the industry, especially realtors, that's sort of 80, 20, right? 80% yeah. maybe do one to two deals per year. Whereas the top 20 generally do 10 to 20, maybe even more deals per year. We know people like that, right? And But I think at 75% off in volume in the loan industry, even the high flyers have got to be a little worried right now. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And, and if you were working on a team before, perhaps 
you know, it's harder to, to afford that team right now. Kind of looking around at the team going, hmm, I yeah. wonder who's on the chopping block. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I think that it's going to be interesting to see as we get to like renewal timeframes for uh, for licenses. So there was a big drop off in mortgage loan officers last December, mm -hmm. for example, because those are annual, those licenses are annual renewals in December. This year is going to be really interesting to see that data. Hold on one second. I, I have, how did you know, how do you keep all the, how do you know that they can renew in December for loan officers? Like, <laughs> I just, I just, I just, I just did nerd and I read a lot. And, a wealth of knowledge, ladies yeah, but it's it's interesting to uh, it'll be interesting to watch that data because you won't see any of the loan officers. You know, like they're still like working. They may not be doing very much, but then you know that's when you got to pony up and reach in your pocket and be like, all right, am I doing this again for right. another twelve months? And uh, you know, some folks will do it just for the optionality. Hopefully, the world's gotten better. Sure, but at other other folks who like have gotten to those low volumes have realized, hey, I need to get a day job, and this is just now a waste of money for me to renew my license. So it'll be interesting to see how many folks drop off uh, at the end of this year. It is a tough time in the industry. There's a company called the Stratmore Group that uh, sort of oversees mortgage lender uh, M&A activities. And uh, in 20 to 21, there was a total of 43 M&A deals, merger and acquisition deals in involving brokers with annual origination volume of 500 grand or more, which is pretty small, obviously. That figure hit 50 deals in 2023, and they think that uh, there'll be, probably be another 60 more just this year. So 110 deals this year where there were 43 you know, mergers and acquisitions in mortgage companies last year. Yeah, pretty insane. The, between the you know, combination of a lot of senior people at mortgage companies made a lot of money in 21 and the early part of 2022, and... It's kind of, you know, we're seeing now, or it feels now that it's going to be a long slog until another, like until volumes, you know, pick back up. So like, you know, if you're 63, maybe it's early retirement time. Like, right. I'm not going to make it to the next boom, you know, to the next boom cycle of this. So like, you know, what, what am I going to just, I'm going to just going to slog for the next six years until yeah. things are good again. So maybe it's a good time to get out and, and sell and sell to another, you know, to you know, some young buck who's coming up and who's going to get another 20 year outlook in them. You know, man, as an investor, you know, obviously that we love speaking with investors and anything that we talk about on the show, I always like to try to boil it down to like, why, you know, why do we care? Why do we care that uh, there's so many mergers and why, that it's a tough time in the loan industry or that uh, it's a tough time for realtors? Well, you know, we like them too, but they are an integral part of, of every investor's business. Every great investor has to have a handful of realtors, bringing them deals, putting the houses on the market, things like that. Tell, tell people why it's important to know this, what we're, what this, this data point that we're giving to them right now. Yeah. So the, uh, you know, I'm sure these folk, these are folks that you've been working with on your team, you know, your team of people that help you get through deals and uh, being able to get a loan to the table, particularly when deals are more scarce yep. uh, is of utmost importance. We were just talking about on the last episode how, you know, you did 29 houses in the first quarter and what, 14, 14 in, the second, in the second. And then, uh, and then just between the two, uh, recording our shows today, you, you picked up your first house this quarter. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, man. Hey, the first one, ma it matters, right? Like, it's great. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. It's a jump off point. But the point is, is that when you have obviously a team of people bringing you deals. It's not just your acquisitions team. It's that realtor that you've had a relationship with over the course of the last 10 years, and maybe they're no longer in the business or, you know, it's a tough time. Yeah. And, and the, the, this is the moment where like the best practitioners really are able to distinguish themselves and grab market share. Whereas, yeah. you know, two years ago, if you were, a, you know, if you were a realtor and you were a listing agent, you put the property on the market, it's clean. The photos are up. 
right. the thing's got 20 showings. So like, you know, is that really selling? Like this, you're not really selling anything, right? You're just like nav- yeah. you're navigating the thing through the process and giving you some advice along the way. Today, however, though supply remains low, the, the, there's that there's that struggle against affordability, and so there are fewer showings as well. And so, not you know not messing that up and making sure that you choose the correct offer, the one that's going to get to the table, which involves you know that understanding if that person's working with a, a competent loan officer. You know either of those practitioners, frankly, are they've become more important to the success yep. of a fix and flip deal today than they were two years ago when it was frankly just a lot easier. And now listen, we know places in the country where they're still getting 10, 15 showings uh, on the first day that it's out. So you know, your mileage may vary, obviously, but you know we, we know investors all over the country. Uh, Jack lends to them. I coach them. So you know your mileage obviously will vary. Topic two. That's a good one. <laughs> I love this one. Uh, there was a bill introduced in the House this week in the United States, United States Congress, Congress, by yeah. the way, not the Maryland House of Delegates, but the United States Congress. It was called the Stop the Predatory Investing Act. And it was uh, authored by uh, Sherrod Brown, Congressman Sherrod Brown, Democrat from Ohio. Jack, this is an interesting bill because it says that um, quickly, that any entity with the exception of nonprofits and the like, owning 50 houses or more, or owning 50 or more homes will be prohibited from deducting the cost of the interest and depreciation on all owned homes. Interesting, uh, it says that uh, new homes, either built or bought, are exempt. There is also a provision to recapture these deductions for homes sold to owner occupants. Yeah. Now, normally in a case like this, uh, I'm not even sure that the bill is in committee, but I think he does have about eight co signers in Congress with him. It's preliminarily scheduled to go into committee. It's a bit vague as you read through it. So I'm sure that there's going to be a lot more, you know, decisive and very detailed language added to it. But this is an apple that Sherrod Brown and guys like him keep taking a bite at. And so I feel like it's coming down the pike and we should let people know depreciation is nothing to mess around with when it comes to one of the four returns that we get on real estate. Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, it, it, seem, it certainly seems like backlash from the idea of institutional real estate investors getting into the market and having a very advantaged cost of capital the past four or five years mm-hmm. and buying a lot of inventory that might otherwise have gone to first time home buyers. A sure. lot of that affordable inventory has been purchased by uh, large investors who had a cost of capital advantage. And so, it's easy to pick on the you know someone who's managing eight thousand houses, finding a situation right. that, that didn't go well, right? And it, I'm sure it immediately didn't go well, but you know one in eight thousand, frankly, ain't that bad. And it, you know they're kind of an easy target, right? The, the larger landlords are an easy target. I was really though taken aback that they set the threshold at fifty properties, sure, which certainly is a you know it's an obvious carve out for mom and pop landlords. But uh, fifty ain't that much anymore. No. There's been a lot of consolidate or a lot of you know consolidation and or rather aggregation of of houses by investors. And certainly for the folks who are listening to the here, they're either at that level or ex- hope to soon be at that level. And the idea of changing the tax code so that, such that you can either duck, deduct depreciation or 
even the interest on your loan. Yeah, that was uh, a part of it that I sort of glossed over, but you were speaking to that as well. That's a big deal. Yeah, it's a, it's a huge change to the economics uh, because as investors, you know, we're we're deciding where to spend our energy, where to spend our our ca- or where to allocate capital, and you know, if you're doing that correctly, you're looking at your net return given the risk of the activity that you're doing. If you're really smart, you're looking at it on an after-tax basis, taking that into consideration. And that after-tax analysis is one of the reasons that real estate investing is as interesting as it is. And ultimately, though, when we're doing that analysis, all of those variables uh, boil down to the offer price that we make on a particular investment, on a particular property. Right. And so if all of a sudden you tell me that I can't deduct interest and I'm not going to get depreciation as a deduction, mm-hmm. that affects that whole analysis. And as a result, I have to, as somebody who owns more than 50 properties, have to offer less on the next deal. Yeah. So who does it punish? To, to accommodate that. Exactly. So what that ends up punishing is the people who might be getting offers from investors. So while I, I feel like it's like a, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a jab at larger landlords, which by the way, is where you often get some of the most professional property management. Yep. Like mom and pop landlord doesn't mean better landlord. Frankly, they're less professional. You may have, a, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes nice, right? Like I've, I've had landlords that were just uh, who, who, a person who owned one property and you got to develop a personal relationship with them. But also if they're on vacation and I've got a leak, a, a leak in the roof, like I can't get them. And they're my property manager. Yeah. And they're, and they're my property manager. Cruise. Yeah. Yeah. You just can't get them. And so you're just stuck dealing with this leak. And maybe you would like to have a company that you can call who's always got people on call. So, you know, the, the judgment aside of whether it's better to have an institutional property manager or a smaller property manager aside, it's an easy jab to try to, t- you know, it's kind of like a taking from them, like, hey, you don't get the tax benefits so then it's anymore. So you're, they're moving, the idea is to move the goalposts on the math uh, for those uh, investors who already have 50 properties. But the net effect of it is that on a going forward basis, those folks are just going to offer less for the next house. So the, the houses that need work, exactly right? Like the, you know, it's, it's mom's house that you're trying to sell and it needs work. You're not selling that to a homeowner. It needs to be sold to an investor. Well, that institutional investor who had a cost of capital advantage and was probably the one who was going to give you the most money for that house. They're just going to offer you making up numbers here, 10 grand less. They're going to offer you less because they have to factor in now that they don't get the interest deduction, they don't get the depreciation deductions. Exactly. So it's one of those like, you know, nice kind of headline things, but probably introduced by somebody who doesn't, who never took economics and doesn't understand that this stuff just all comes down in the wash. Just looks at you like the bad guy. Through pricing. Yeah. And you're not going to take anything. So who does it benefit? The benefit, I think, it certainly does or could benefit those who own less than 50 properties because they will still have the advantage of just deductions and depreciation. You know, presumably anybody who's investing full time is is itemizing deductions on their tax returns. They would have the advantage of, of both of those itemized deductions. So it does kind of shift the balance a little bit towards the smaller investor in terms of kind of leveling the playing field from uh, what price they can pay. Yeah, but ironically, and this is something you, we shared between uh, taping here, that, that it also benefits the REITs. You know, the, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the one who was supposed to get jabbed, yeah. you know, is, is actually getting a great benefit because they don't pay taxes. Yeah, that's a great point. So the, the public REITs who don't pay taxes because that's one of the benefits of being a REIT structure is to provide dividends. And so if you comply with all the REIT guidelines, you don't have to pay corporate income tax. You have to distribute your income 
uh, to your investors, 90% of your income to your investors, but you have the benefit of not paying corporate tax. And so it ironically makes them more competitive because they didn't care, right? Like they, or they didn't care about the depreciation side or they, mm-hmm. they didn't, sorry, they didn't care about the tax effect. So it benefits the really small landlords and the super huge in landlords and everybody like, you know, 50 to 2000, Yep, which is you know, like, you know, that's, that's, those are my people. That's your uh, bread and butter, baby. <laughs> like they're the ones getting screwed by this idea. So not, a, you know, uh, not a huge fan for, for, for obviously I'm also talking my own book here, but, um, not a huge fan of this idea. The, the national rental home council seems to have taken up the fight. If for those that are not familiar with that, that's the kind of the trade organization that was formed probably almost 10 years ago at this point, getting close to it anyway. Um, and they're a trade organization that represents institutional, mostly institutional owners of real estate, though you can join at any level as a, as a, as a real estate investor, as an owner of real estate. This is the one you were mentioning prior to that you, that you'll be joining. Yeah, we're, um, I got a call with them today because uh, I got a notification about this. And then certainly it's something that concerns me. Uh, and most national rental home council has been dominated mostly by the larger landlords and, but there also hasn't been like a lot to fight against, right? It's what do you mostly consider a larger landlord? Uh, well, it's mostly the public REITs, private REITs, uh, people who own, you know, a thousand units plus have been the, the, so far have been the, the, uh, the members of national rental home council. I think it is coming down though. Like they, they've set themselves up as a professional trade organization. They're monitoring the stuff that, that, that concerns us. They've gotten the, the, the big guys to pay dues. So they've got actually got a professional organization that's great. And so then if we as smaller investors can ride coattails on their lobbying efforts and their PR efforts. You know, it's, I think it's going to become a, a broader base uh, trade organization for the, the whole industry. Let's bring it down to a local level of silly legislation and then talk about some of the things that you've done locally here. Uh, so in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is uh, just outside of DC, they just passed, this isn't being considered, this was passed a rent control bill with a 6% cap. And the legislation allows landlords to increase rents by uh, the rate of inflation plus 3%, but it sets a maximum of 6%. So in most apartments around that area, it passed by a vote of seven to four, no shocker in Montgomery County, which is uh, one of the most liberal districts in the country. It sets up multiple exemptions for units that won't need to comply with the cap, including apartments owned by landlords with four or fewer units in the county licensed assisted living facilities, nursing homes, and buildings that came into the market within the last 23 years. So basically anything from 2000 backwards, mm-hmm. you, you can't uh, uh, go beyond 6%. You know, the reason we, we don't like to keep the show totally local, obviously it's a nationwide show. Jack is a nationwide lender. And so, uh, but the reason why I thought it was interesting, Jack, is because we're seeing a lot of this from around the country. I mean, you, one only has to pick up the, do a little Google search on uh, rent control measures or rent control legislation being proposed and or enacted around the country. And I think it's a very significant issue for landlords to be thinking about right now. And so talk about what, what you think about that and what you've done about it. Yeah. So the, uh, it is something that's, that's, been popping up right new york famously has a lot of rent control and have for quite some time yeah and a lot of other jurisdictions have you know locally have enacted those kinds of things and there's more and more of move in that direction lots of pressure yeah now there's there's a fair amount of organized pushback because new york's been such a failure from that from that point of view like the idea that 
it creates certain affordable housing, but perverts like the market in, in, in other ways so much so that there's, I think, a strong argument that, that, that it's just not worth it. That's ridiculous. Far better to actually focus on increasing supply than restricting the supply that already exists. You know, if we built more houses, then we would also have affordable housing. Um, so not letting any new houses get built is, you know, avoiding that whole idea, right? It, it, you know, ch- focusing on rent control is, a, is really an avoidance of dealing with the supply issue, which is the longer term fundamental issue. And so we can kick the can here for a little while and by trying to restrict it, but we're going to continue to have an affordable housing issue until we deal with a lack of supply issue. And so for me, it's a bit of a red herring, like an easy political thing to like, you know, shiny object for the politicians to look over here and pound their chest about, yeah. even though they're not fixing any of the fundamentals. Um, yeah, it sounds so great. Hey, we've, we've done this great thing for renters. Your, your bad landlord can increase rents beyond, uh, you know, this percentage when in fact it has, uh, it has a, a far more reaching, uh, you know, benefit or detriment, I guess I should say. Right. Yeah. Talk about, um, if you would, um, SDC, and sort of what you've been doing with that for the last several years. Yeah, so we've been seeing, uh, we've been seeing. What is it? Yeah, yeah. We, so we've been seeing, you know, in general over the years. I think that uh, prior to the National Rental Home Council, there wasn't really, there were very few trade organizations for, for landlords advocacy. Yeah, and uh, really nothing for folks who were buying houses, fixing them up, and then reselling them to homeowners. Mm-hmm. And as a result, we've had in in on a local politics level i'm sure folks who have listened to this you know seen this all across the country that uh, a general pressure it's kind of easy to pick on the landlord easy to pick on the real estate investor politically it's easy to pick on them and so you've had a trend in that direction right like it's a source of you know that's that's a pool of capital that they can go try and tax or do rent control you know restrict in any political way that's like you know from a populist point of view like convenient there's any number of regulations right yeah exactly and depending on your you know depending on your municipality, you've got your own flavor of that. And there's really kind of been like very little organizing on the grassroots level. I'm sure there are certain RIAs that have an advocacy component to it. Uh, in Baltimore, we used to have the Property Owners Association in the you know 80s and 90s, but it kind of has fizzled out. And it felt, it, there was, it, it all felt very disjunct. You know, there was this little group over here that did their thing and maybe had, you know, an, an ear down at City Hall this guy over here didn't, you know, and it was very, it was all very sort of small groups. And so go yeah. ahead. something that we tried to do in Baltimore. So we put this together, Alicia Corson and Andrea Campo were actually yes. the founders of the small developers collective in Baltimore city, probably seven or eight years ago. Now they got organized and started to create a grassroots organization, run it as a nonprofit. And it's a nonprofit trade organization for landlords and people who renovate houses and fix up, you know, doing community development through fixing up the city mm-hmm. for profit, nonprofit, anybody fixing up houses and who owns real estate that they don't live in is represented by this group. And uh, we run it as a, a nonprofit board. Uh, it's a volunteer board and we put on networking events. We uh, meet with legislators we publish, uh, we, we do legislative monitoring to try to rally the troops when we see so, something coming down the, the pipe that we are concerned about. We meet with those legislators to you know, present a human face to landlords and real estate investors. And it was a nice experiment eight years ago. I was like, hey, well, let's play it out, see how it goes. I, I was there when it happened. I met in a restaurant and uh, it was just sort of ideas. Uh, yeah. 
And it has been amazing the uh, traction. Yeah, the traction that we've gotten off of it over the past uh, eight years, and the you know the, the the engagement has been incredibly positive. There has been reception even from folks that we don't necessarily agree with from a political point of view about that. You know, the, yes, you are part of the community. Yes, it's necessary to work with these folks for the betterment of communities and putting a human face to landlord investor has really kind of like helped keep what's come down the pipe a lot more reasonable and given a voice to a group who, you know, I, my view is that is absolutely vital to the community development of Baltimore uh, in our case. And, but that, you know, but that statement goes for, for any uh, city or County in the country and uh, really kind of putting a, a human face behind that and making and giving us a voice to be part of the conversation has been, uh, has paid a lot of dividends from a keeping things reasonable yeah, and taking the volume down you know, on, on the rhetoric. What I find amazing, Jack, and you know, I've spoken all over the RIAs around the country. I know real estate investors around the country, the country, just like you do. I've not ever met one who said, I want to be a drag on the community. Yeah. Every single one of them, especially the new ones, you know, I want to bring communities up. I want to make communities better. Yet we find that there's this sort of very adversarial relationship between what we do and the folks at city hall or even the folks at the state. And so one of the things I never got a chance to ask you is it has been an amazing run for the small developers collective, uh, you know, and what do you think the secret sauce is for the success of it? Is it the fact that it was, you know, two great, two great investors who started it with, with the help of you or was it, you know, what, why, why do you think it's been such a great success? What, is it just an idea that's so badly needed? Yeah. Because I obviously, what I'm trying to uh, get across here is that this could happen in every town. They can, it could happen in your town, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, yeah, it's an idea that is so badly needed. And what is miss and and there's not really much of a revenue or profit motive behind it. Like of course, getting small investors to pay dues is really challenging. Like it's not. You know, we 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 actually don't even run a dues paying organization. It's a, it's just a volunteer, come as you are, uh, free to join organization. But we found so much interest. We've grown the board to uh, twelve people right now. Where it's a volunteer board, and there's such an interest in folks who do you know, believe in the, the long-term value of for-profit involvement in community development, yep. that it wasn't hard to, and it wasn't hard to recruit those folks because it's an idea that has just been waiting for so long. What's been, what was missing was that spark of leadership. You need somebody to be the first one to raise the flag and be like, Hey, these are the things that I believe. Mm -hmm. I think that we are good for Milwaukee, good for St. Louis, where, you know, pick your, pick your town. And and I'm tired of getting the shit kicked out of me in, you know, in the media. And, you know, I'm good for the city and I, and I, and I want to be, I want to present a face to it. And just being that, you know, being that rallying point yep. to, for, to organize uh, investors who are, to, who do have the long-term best interests of their municipality in mind, you know, that spark of leadership is the only thing that's really missing. Like we run it without a budget. It didn't, doesn't cost us anything. It costs us, you know, I probably spend five, 10 hours a month uh, on it. And we've got now you know, 12 other people who are spending five, 10 hours a month on it. And we actually have some, uh, some impact. Have you ever done a study on the amount of dollars, uh, via, you know, 
that is spent on materials at say all your home depots locally? Have you ever done a study on the amount of property taxes that have been regenerated by these houses that have been brought back up, um, you know, from vacancy to beautiful? You ever done that? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's tremendous. I pulled, uh, in 2017, I pulled data, just all the public records data, looked at all the non-owner-occupied purchases of properties, yep. extrapolated just kind of an average average investment in yep. each, each of those properties. And in Baltimore, in one year, it was $60 million of incremental, not only investment, you know, half of that being materials, probably roughly half of that materials, half of that labor. So $30 million of labor dollars going into these houses, $30 million of, you know, Material of materials. Materials, right plus the incremental value add from a property tax point of view of at least $60 million a year, because probably $60 million of hard costs plus a margin, right? Yep. In terms of value creation. So, you know, the, the, when you look at the, you know, a fiscal analysis of, of that activity, it's overwhelmingly positive, right? Yet in every town in America, the investor is always persona non grata with the politicians. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, they're, it's an easy, cheap shot, right? Like, yep. It's the guy with the money. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is which is rarely the case, right? Like, but it's mo- it's most often really just a small mom and pop landlord who has one property that they used to live in, and they and they are not somebody that you that you can tax or should tax, right? Like they're they're not there's no there's no pot of money there. Yeah, they're just like you know hoping to clear two hundred bucks after they make their mortgage payment. Last question on the topic. So, what would be like a typical then? investor who is in the SDC here in Baltimore? What, you know, give me, give me that stereotypical member of the small developers collective. I mean, it's really anybody who owns property that they don't live in and, or renovates properties. If you're, you know, buying, renovating and reselling to homeowners. No way, big fat cat, you know, like these aren't all guys with 800 houses and you know, this is your average, you know, somebody who owns three houses is our member. Uh, somebody who does two flips a year is our, is our member and And the community that supports them too. Right. Like, and the, and and the entire vendor community that vendor community that isn't participatory in that activity. Telling you, if you haven't done one in your town, or if you've thought about organizing a group of investors in your town, and you'd like more information on it, I guarantee you that Jack would, would uh, love to help you out or just, you know, drop a, drop a comment, you know, get you all the information you need on how you could start a, you know, a small developers collective in your town to give a voice to yourself and all of the rest investors in the community. It's a great thing that you've, you've done with that. Yeah. And check out the website. It's www.smalldeveloperscollective.org. And that's just our version of it. That's just the name that we came up with. Of course, you know, it's not a franchise or anything. You can name it whatever you like. But the, no, the that's point is to be the money making opportunity. <laughs> yeah, we'll franchise it to you. But the, the the point is that somebody needs to step up and be the spark of leadership to rally to to rally the community and then put forward a positive public face to our activities. Yeah, there's no doubt that this is a real passion project for Alicia and Andrea when it started, and as well as you. I mean, you put yeah. a lot of work into the thing, so. Um, I think that's exactly right. That's the secret sauce of it, that you have to have that, that spark of passion at the beginning where people are just not, they're, they're tired of getting you know, sort of beat down, you know? Yeah. Topic number three, what's keeping bankers up at night? Jack, it's the plight of community banks that you know I'm, uh, I'm so interested in. And uh, this particular article, I won't go much into it, is an American banker article that just said that uh, you know community banks are really grappling with these surging deposit costs and increased expectations for weaker economic conditions. And uh, as you know, community banks are truly sort of the lifeblood of what we do. What are you seeing right now in community banking? Uh, yeah, so that deposit increase 
the rate, the, the cost of deposit. Will you explain that to folks who might, the, the cost of deposits? So yeah, yeah, sure. Just, you know, the, the, how much, however much your bank is paying you for your savings accounts or for the CDs that you have in that pro- or your money market sweep account. Um, Grandmom's going to take down a uh, hundred thousand dollars to the bank and she wants to know how much they're paying for it basically. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And so the cost of that is now going up. Yeah. It's gone up a couple hundred basis points, like two, you know, two, 200, 2%. And, uh, that is from a bank's point of view, that's their liabilities, right? Like that's the money that they use to go lend out. So when they lend us money at 7%, if the, they're borrowing that money from grandma at two or they're borrowing versus borrowing that money from grandma at four and a half, it makes a significant difference in their profit margins. And so with, um, you know, we continue to have high interest rates. The Fed uh, is threatening to do another couple quarter point hikes. So interest rates haven't come down, particularly on short-term CD rates. And so banks can expect and now do unfortunately expect to have those uh, costs of liabilities stay up for a longer period of time, which means that they're going to pass it on to us, their customers, through trying to get higher, higher rates from us. You know, which makes it harder for us to make deals work, which means that we buy fewer houses uh, or make fewer real estate investments, generally speaking. And so there's, you know, definitely a trickle down effect to that, which is the point, right? That's why that is how the Fed's tweaking of monetary policy by raising interest rates makes it to Main Street is they use the banks as as the way to do that. And so um if you're a bank, if you're a local bank, uh, at the same time, by the way, there's more regulation coming at the banks right now because yeah, of the, exactly. the the crisis and the fallout from that, and concerns about how uh, capital is repre- how the regulators are asleep at the wheel or not, and how banks bank management is managing their own balance sheets, and are you know can they weather the the storm of the next twelve months, and are they stable as a, a set of institutions in the country? And so the small, the local community bank right now is getting it from both sides, right? They're getting an increase in their, their deposit costs and an increase in their, in, in, uh, in their regulatory costs, which Mm -hmm. is just straight overhead. Right. And so there's a lot of conversation about how there is expected to be over the course of the next several years. It'll probably, and it'll take several years for this to play itself out. Another round of bank consolidation. Uh, in the wake of 2000, the Great Recession, we had Dodd-Frank, which was an inc- a significant increase in the cost of regulation. And that led to a significant wave of consolidation, M&A activity in the banking sector. And, and just now a lot of them going out of the business. You know, a lot yeah, of them got yeah. shut down as well. Yeah, yeah. The one, yeah it's it, about 3,500. Yeah, the ones that, that made it through, yeah, the, the, the ones that didn't just go out of business because of the Great Recession, lots of them got, got consolidated up. And now we're kind of primed here for another round of consolidation. Yep. Um, so it's going to be tough to, you know, if you're, if you're working with a $500 million bank, which is your prototypical local main street bank all over the, all over the country, it's getting even tougher to stay a $500 million bank. You know, a billion plus is becoming like the new, like the new local table bank. stakes. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Which also means that we're going to have, you know, as, as institutions get bigger, the service level down to Main Street tends to suffer. That's the part that I just, that bothers me. You know, I, I, I want to go buy my house on, uh, you know, Harford Road. You know, Truist Bank has no clue of what's going on on Harford Road. It could be a revitalization area. It could be, it doesn't, you know, this applies to your town as well. That regional bank, that billion dollar plus bank now, uh, yeah, you might get 
slightly faster service from them because their loan committee meets uh, once a week rather than once every other month like the local guys used to do. However, they have no clue of what's going on locally right? yeah. down at the street level, which is how we where we operate, obviously. Yeah. And that's not, obviously, that's an unintended consequence, but it's an unintended concept, but it is a consequence nonetheless. <laughs> right. They're not trying to, to, to destroy the Main Street service level, but they are. Yes. <laughs> but it will happen. Yeah, so. exactly. Next topic. Uh, this is one that, uh, you know, honestly, I, I was, uh, you sent this one over to me, and I, I guess I was uh, a little blown away by it that the uh, home vester CEO steps down, Jack. Uh, it says the, uh, the number of franchises for the company has increased. I realized they were so large, actually, from uh, 165, just 165 in 2009 to nearly 1,150 today. But the company has also been bought and sold multiple times during uh, the last, the last name of the CEO is Hicks during his tenure. It's now owned by Bayview Asset Management. They, they acquired Homebesters in 2022. The reason is why. There's been a lot of pressure on this guy, obviously. So talk about that. Yeah. So Bayview, the Bayview purchase of Homebusters was super interesting in and of itself uh, because Bayview is a massive mortgage servicer and owner of uh, mortgages, both consumer and non-QM. Doesn't really seem like the uh, the customer to purchase Homebusters for some, you know. Yeah. It, and it wouldn't have been until the non-qualified mortgage space has really taken off over the past three, four years, particularly in the DSCR lending side of things. So mm-hmm. Bayview is a big purchaser of, of DSCR loans from uh, originators all, all over the country. And so I think as part of the growth of that business, they saw the Homebusters franchise as like, you know, the the entrenched brand that is has nationwide coverage has does have absolutely has some of the be- the most talented investors in the country i hear they buy ugly houses they, yeah and there's yeah they, they get a very uh sporty <laughs> fashion sense with their caveman and uh but i mean everyone's seen that we buy ugly houses uh billboards and we even know a guy that fought that i think yeah, yeah. the uh and, and they're they're you know their model for those who aren't familiar their model is generally a uh advertising sharing pool so right. You buy a franchise, you get lots of systems and processes, you go through a bunch of training, and you commit to a certain amount of spending each month for advertising. And then Homebusters pulls that advertising both regionally and nationally and gets better rates on their, their lead gen activities. Yep. And then they feed those leads into a distribution mechanism that uh, allocates them to you pro rata based off of your spending on a local and national be- level. That was one of the most succinct business model uh, descriptions. That, that was excellent, by yeah, the way. That so is the crux of what they do. Thank you. And they, uh, and it's worked. And, yep. it's, and it's worked really well. Now, and, and you know, they, they obviously they grew to 1,100 investors. The private equity company that used to own them sold them to Bayview. Bayview saw them as a way to sell, probably saw them. I don't, you know, I've never, I haven't talked to the Bayview execs about this, but probably saw them as a way to a distribution mechanism for their mortgage products. Yep. And that seems like a, and, and you know, there's profitability in and of itself. 1,150 investors got to be buying a lot of homes. Yeah. And Homebusters folks pay enough for their franchise that they are active. You don't have the Homebusters franchise and then not buy any houses. You're not, you're not kicking the tires as a, as a hobbyist. No, if you're, no, you're yeah. committed when you buy a Homebusters franchise. Right. So all that said, Homebusters has been getting the crap kicked out of it in the media because of some uh, what's been accused to be predatory practices in terms of when they're buying those houses, sitting across the kitchen table, you know, with 1,100 folks, you don't know what's being, you know, as the, as the franchise, you don't necessarily know the, what's being said in those conversations. Correct. And the nature of those transactions is, you know, is definitionally delicate, right? Like 
You're well, buying a house, you're buying a home from somebody that needs work, from somebody who's willing to sell, who needs the cash, right? Like that's why they're calling you is they need the cash. And you're buying it at a significant discount. Yeah. And you can be buying it at a significant discount. So that can be done appropriately where it's solving problems, you know, where you're a solution provider, mm -hmm. but it can be done in a predatory manner if the person that you're talking to doesn't know what they're doing, for example, which is one of the things that they got accused of, that can be highly problem. I mean, that, you know, that's just way unethical. You know, there's mm -hmm. just no, no excusing for that. And so I think it was a ProPublica article. It was. That got released. They, did, they uh, just did a deep dive on them and they, ripped they, them to shreds. Yeah. I'm looking at the article right now and it was rough. Uh, it was uh, ProPublica. If you want to check out the show notes for today, as always, you can go to realinvestorradio.com forward slash notes, where we provide links uh, to the stories that I find for, uh, and Jack finds for research for the show. But this story, this is brutal. The ugly truth behind We Buy Ugly Houses. And they did a fairly uh, significant investigation on this, uh, but go ahead. Yeah, so the um, you know it, the the allegations were generally that there was some unethical stuff happening at some of the franchises, and in the wake of all of that, the uh, the CEO of Homebusters stepped down and kind of uh, alluded, even in his public statement, that that press had really taken a personal toll yeah, on him. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to see what the franchise will do on a going forward basis, right? Like Homebusters is part of the real estate investing like fabric in the country. Like it really every, is. Everyone knows a real a Homebusters franchisee. If you don't, you, you, whether you know it or not, you know, you, you know, you know one and uh, who's operates in your local market. And um, so it's interesting to see, you know, being, a, having a very national prominent uh, brand and having, you know, you're susceptible, right. To these kinds of attacks um, you know, in the same way that an invitation homes is more susceptible to attacks about bad landlording practices than a local mom and pop landlord might be. Yeah. So just, just quickly on this one, um, this, uh, pro investigation based on court documents, property records, the company training materials and interviews with 48 former franchise owners and dozens of homeowners have sold to its franchises. They found that homevestors franchisees that they used deception and targeted the elderly infirmed and those close to poverty um, that they feared that homelessness would be a consequence of selling. I don't know how that actually worked, but I mean, look, we've all done wholesale deals and, you know, we know that uh, there are ways that you can, that there, there's ways that you can do it above board and there's ways that you can do it very deceptively. Um, you know, I think some of the you can't have 1150 franchisees and everybody's going to be always operating above board. Uh, it's just, it's hard to say that that, that would I, yeah, happen. ProPublic would probably say you have to, especially if you're going to have 1150 franchisees, you, that the quality control necessary to, to make that. So we can avoid this, you know, it, 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 you know, it wasn't enough, right? Whatever they did wasn't enough would be the criticism, right? Correct. And, um, it's tough to scale. It's the, you know, it, it, it gets hard to scale, especially, you know, as you get more public, the spotlight gets, uh, gets brighter. So. 71,000 transactions the company's done since 2016. There's going to be a bad one amongst the group, yeah. you know, or yeah. two, right? Yeah. Uh, let's see what else I have for today. That might be it. No, multi, a little bit of multifamily news, Jack. Multifamily news, you know, we, we, we like to cover all things residential, both uh, single family and multi. And it, look, it looks like, uh, there's a, a report here where FHFA extends forbearance for rental properties. So Fannie and Freddie extend forbearance for owners with caveats 
through the end of September. Those uh, forbearance agreements were scheduled to end this month. And it looks like that uh, Fannie and Freddie have uh, extended those forbearances for owners through the end of September. Um, those options put off debt payments for federally backed multifamily properties that have been slated to expire, as I said, at the end of June. The regulator also extended protections. Look, if you're going to get as a landlord, Jack, then your tenants have to get uh, protections as well. And that's really what this is all about, obviously. So maybe you could speak to that. So by the way, let me, quickly though, it says here, um, as of the most recent report, there are 1,154 securitized loans with forbearance, which is actually only about 2.1% of the entire GSC portfolio. For those where the forbearance has ended, more than 82% have actually are currently making payments or have fully repaid those, you know, what was owed via the forbearance. So maybe you could speak to that. Do you know the reason for why the forbearance, why the properties were in the forbearance plans to begin with? If you read the article, it's COVID, COVID, COVID. Right? Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah, it's impressive that this that, that this far along we've still got some COVID hangover. Mm-hmm. Though I'll say that the court systems do, or at least our court system does, still have significant COVID hangover that you have not. You know, we're we're still months and months behind on eviction cycles, and as a result, the you know the aging on our properties, like we're we're getting. We're collecting those rents eventually because people don't want to be evicted and they have been fine for a while as it relates to the disruptions that may have happened during during COVID. Obviously, there was a lot of rental assistance that was handed out in the wake of COVID as yep. well. And it is, it's interesting to that there are still uh, enough anecdotes out there that FHFA is allowing those forbearance plans to, you know, to continue to kick those plans, probably as you know, the court systems continue to catch up and try to get back to a place where we're enforcing property rights on a consistent, timely basis. Yeah, I don't. I think this is clearly a uh, you know, it, it it talks about the the article really talks about from the standpoint of the owner, but it's really all about the renter. It's all about the tenant at this point. So as you look across your portfolio of eight hundred plus houses, you know, did you have to do a lot of forbearance on rent payments or? We, it was far, not nearly as, as bad as we expected. Like we were freaking out, right? Like everyone was freaking out that it was going to be horrible. And you remember what percentage it was uh, from those late, those who couldn't pay, those you had to work out deals with? Well, yeah, it was, it was ironically, we had, it was, uh, we actually collected more rent than we usually did, <laughs> which was like the shocker, right? Yeah, right. But more I think COVID it, please. Yeah. God. At the time, though, I think the the sentiment was generally that like no one wants to get evicted during COVID. So like they prioritize and also they weren't doing anything else. Right. So they had if you you didn't lose your job, you know, which many people were affected, of course, by losing their jobs and having income um, disruption. But for those that didn't, you prioritize your rental payment because no one wanted to get evicted during COVID. That was like a horrifying idea, you know, to be vulnerable in a period of vulnerability. So we actually didn't have as bad of, we actually had better rent collections than we usually did, but we had this like small minority of folks who abused the system. I was concerned it was going to be like a solid chunk, Yep. but it ended up being a, a very small minority of like, you know, which turned into like, you know, just disaster scenarios where someone hasn't paid for like 15 months and it wasn't because they were affected. It was because they're game in the system. Right. Now that was a very small minority, but it did happen. Still. A few percent. Yeah. So if you're, uh, and we were fortunate enough to have enough properties that uh, as a portfolio, it was fine. Like we could handle that. 
but if you were an unlu- you know if you were a landlord that had one of those situations and got unlucky and that was in, that was you know in, that was one of three that you own well that was a massive problem yeah and so i i think you know that we so we kicked the can for a long time then there was some covid assistance that came in and you know depending on your municipality or county or state those were that that covid assistance to renters for rental payment catch up was uh uh doled out on a somewhat successful basis yeah and then now it's been more of a story of the court systems catching up and their ours is still not you know really fully caught up it's amazing how we're still working out from that hangover you know just yeah. it really really is something i you know hear it all over the country you know but strangely enough i i haven't heard many horror stories yeah you know it's it's it really I, quite frankly in in a lot of these uh, states that had really strict lockdowns where people were losing jobs losing businesses it's amazing that uh, we we hear you lend the guys all over the country it's amazing how we just haven't heard a lot of the horror stories that you would have expected. Yeah, no. And so, so, which makes this story a little odd in the sense that we're still dealing with it, right? Yeah, Through I agree. September. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Hey, listen, man, that's all I have for today's podcast. You got anything else you want to add? No, I'm great. Well, that was uh, a solid 51 minutes. All right. Hey, listen. Hey, thanks for checking us out again at Real Investor Radio. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We've got a ton more coming for you guys in the upcoming episodes. We're going to start having some really great guests that are coming on that can add to the flavor of the show. Excited about that. That's coming up real soon. And uh, just can't thank you guys enough for checking it out. Love to hear your comments. Please leave them below. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Jack. Thanks, Craig.